0: Podcast where we talk about the best in film each and every week. I am your host, Rob Carraher, And this week we are doing our real marathon uh marathon. Uh and it's our spoiler show where we are talking about the anthology series, Small Acts, uh written by or written and, well, created by Steve McQueen. Um, the the director the black director who uh, won Best Picture with uh, 12 Years a Slave um, but has really solidified himself as one of the uh, better black directors uh, currently working and has uh, really kind of cemented um, a, a style and uh, I, I think he's pretty fantastic yeah, and these films are definitely kind of fit into that that same idea. Um, I, I'm going to do this show a little bit different, obviously, because it is our spoiler show. We're going to be talking spoilers. Though I must say, these films are not really the spoiler type. Uh, whether you know the results or not of what what happens... Um, it doesn't really impact your experience with the film. I didn't know if that was going to be the case. But that is the way it is. Um, and and that, that is just fine. Um, but we're still going to be talking about uh, each film individually a little bit. And then kind of as a collective. Um, and I am not going to be holding back <laughs> on uh, talking about what ends up happening. Um, but we th- this... This uh, show, I feel like, is a good time for us to really um, kind of just try some different things. Uh, when I started this podcast, I uh, really wanted to uh, have a concept and uh, just just go with it. Um, this isn't something that I've been practicing up to. Um, so it's all been a little bit experimental. There's certain things that I really like about what I've done thus far, and there's some things that I, I haven't really loved uh, as much. And so we're going to be tweaking um, a few pieces, and uh, I feel like this is a good show to really start out um, changing some of those things up, and, uh, and then we're, we're going to see where it goes. Um, that's the best part about all of this is it's mine, and uh, I want to share it with you. But uh, I, I do want to try some different things out, and so that's what we're going to do. Um, so we're going to start today's show uh, by actually looking into uh, the Small Axe anthology, and um, we're we're going to do those reviews and talk about those films first. Um, then we'll talk news which is going to be primarily uh, Golden Globe and the upcoming Critics' Choice Awards. So we're going to be talking about those things. Um, I will go over the events again. Um, and then we are going to chop trivia for the time being. Uh, I I like the idea of it. Uh, I'm going to try some things that are a little bit different in the future. So it's not going to go away forever. Um, but for the time being, we aren't going to do some new trivia questions. I will over the answers from last week to end the show Um, but it's time to kind of play around with the show a little bit and see see if we can uh, find find something that you know uh, works a little bit better so when we come back from this break uh, we're going to talk small acts and uh, I'm looking forward to that So we'll see you on the other side Right, let's talk small acts. The film anthology made by the fantastic director Steve McQueen, not to be compared to the uh, actor. Um, Steve McQueen is has become quite a, a an important uh, filmmaker in the last decade. Um, and that is certainly the case with these five films that he made um, under the title of Small Acts. Small Acts is uh, kind of, it, it struggles to find a place where, as it, as it kind of falls between this idea of it being a film and a uh, series. Um, I know there are other television series out there um that are similar where they they have uh kind of a similar theme it but each film or each episode uh has a has different characters, it's a different story, um and I and I know that's out there. Like I I I understand that there are other things like this, uh, but not to the same extent. Each of these are individual films, um, and and they are all of high quality. Uh But it made it difficult for this series, this anthology, to really find a place in award season. I think that we're going to see the Emmys probably recognize it um, in the miniseries or uh, made-for-TV movies. But uh, it it seems like it almost should be in play for uh, Oscars, and they decided not to go that route. Um, which makes it interesting. Uh, the film did win a, uh, a golden globe for the third film in, or the series won a golden globe for the third film in the series, red, white, and blue. Um, John Boyega, uh, he won best actor in a limited series or movie made for television at the golden globes. Um, and uh, that, that was the only, the only award that it won. It did lose in the Best Limited Series or uh, Television Film category. Uh, we're going to see if John Boyega can win that again here in uh, this upcoming week at the Critics' Choice Awards. And let me tell you, he is fantastic. Oh, man. Uh, Star Wars, the Star Wars films that he was in, they do not do his his uh, acting skill justice. I cannot wait to see John Boyega in more things um, and in more uh, of these Oscar bait type roles. Um, I As I was watching the, the film that he's in, I kept thinking, man, it would be sweet to see him as the next James Bond. Uh, I feel like he would be perfect for that. Um, being a British actor, uh, kind of keeping in line with that, that tradition of having a British actor, that'd be awesome. Um, so I'm, I'm rooting for him. I'm rooting for him to potentially get that opportunity. Um, but this, this series, I think, uh, is kind of getting a little bit lost in the in-between. Uh, it is very good. And if, any of you listening, despite the fact that I'm going to spoil some stuff, uh, haven't seen it yet. I highly recommend watching it. Um, you do want to go into it knowing that th- these are films made for uh, the patient the patient movie watcher. At times, it seems like scenes maybe go on a little longer than they need to. Um, it... It feels artsy, but it forces you as a viewer to really just take a breath and reflect on what is happening and at the very essence of what it is to be human. Steve McQueen is a master at being able to show this on the screen. All of his films. I've seen I still haven't seen Widows but all uh, his other films have done a fantastic job of just really capturing what it means to be human and sometimes that's just simplicity and he's okay with just allowing his actors to show this allowing us to be observers as we watch the simplicity of life play out. Um, So there are five different films and they all revolve around the West Indian immigrants who live in London um, and in particular those who lived in London from the 1960s through the 1980s. They... None of the stories are actually connected except through that uh, concept. Um, And as I was saying earlier, you have other shows that are kind of like this, um, but I haven't seen anything quite like this. Uh, It really reminded me of the Coen Brothers film that came out a few years ago, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, where uh, you get the sense of different stories that have... Fairly different tone um, that that represent the the American West, and they they're not they're not connected in any way uh, except for that they are just life in the American West. Um, granted, this is on a much larger scale because they're separated out, and uh, these the films are a lot longer than the short little films that are all packaged in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Um, but it has, it has very much that same sort of feel where you are, uh, just, you're getting a piece of life uh, for these folks and what, what it means or what it meant to live in London in the 1960s through 1980s as a West Indian immigrant coming from the Caribbean area. Um, so the, the. Title of this anthology is called Small Axe, and when I watched it, I did not know where that title came from, and I was kind of waiting for it to pop up, but as I did a little bit of research, um, Steve McQueen chose the title of Small Axe because it comes from a, po- a proverb that was made uh, quite popular um, by Bob Marley in 1973 in his song, small acts. Alright? And so this this proverb reads, if you are the big tree, we are the small axe. And in watching this, this title fits what is happening perfectly. We are watching these immigrants as they are being faced with discrimination, with being seen as less than because of the way they look and where they are from. And in order to make it, in order to not be beaten down. These folks, they have to be the small axe and stand up against that big tree. And they're they're willing to fight the machine. And I think that is a absolutely poetic way to think about this anthology. It it really brings these films more together. Okay, so there are five films. The first is a film entitled Mangrove. The second is Lover's Rock. The third is Red, White, and Blue, which is the one that uh, John Boyega is in, and uh, he won the Golden Globe for. The fourth is a film called Alex Weedle, and the fifth is a film called Education. They all vary in length, with the first um, being, I think, a little over two hours, um, and the last one being just an hour and three minutes. But they're all over an hour, um, and and so that that kind of makes it more, it breaks it more into that film side of things. Um I think the best way to kind of go about this is to talk about each film individually so you can kind of get a feel for each film. Um, and then we we can talk about some of the uh, overarching things that, that make this series fantastic. So we're going to start with the film Mangrove. Uh, Mangrove, I ended up giving four out of five stars. Uh, it is pretty dang good. (laughs) Um, The thing that I find extremely interesting is this film is eerily similar to The Trial of the Chicago 7, which is a frontrunner, one of probably a few frontrunners for Best Picture at the Oscars. What makes it more interesting is that I think Mangrove is a better film. Um, and it's not to take anything away from the trial of the Chicago Seven. Uh, it's a very well well made film. Um, it 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 maybe just lacks a little bit of the heart that we see in Mangrove. Uh, you don't get so much of the cultural aspect uh, in the trial of Chicago Seven. And I think that we get the, – the fact that we get to see um, our main character in Mangrove uh, really be a part of his community and this community that loves each other and they love their culture and they and – he, and he loves providing uh, – because he owns a restaurant and this restaurant is a place for the people of Mangrove to spend are um, the people of this community to spend at the mangrove. Um, and, and that aspect of it is just so cool. And it really allowed me to buy in. With the exception of a couple characters in the tri- trial of the Chicago 7, you know, ultimately, it, I didn't feel anything for them. Um, and in this case, you have several characters that you are rooting for and in the end you get to see them succeed um, which that catharsis is something that frankly movies made about discrimination against uh, the black community regardless of whether it's in Britain or in the United States doesn't typically end well and here it does and, and you know that you, you get the feeling as the film starts that it's going to end well for these people um, but the fact that you get to see them kind of meld together as this community, you watch as the police in London and in this this area discriminate against them and are actively trying to mess with them, um, and then you get to watch the trial take place, in and they basically embarrass the these police officers who just keep going after them and they're trying to get something to stick. And so to watch all of this play out, um, it's just so cathartic. Um, and, and the film has a lot of heart because of that. Um, I, it feels weird saying that I enjoyed this film quite a bit more than the trial of the Chicago seven. Cause the trial of the Chicago seven is very beloved. Um, But, but I think if you love high quality film, once again, not to take anything away from Aaron Sorkin, but he's not, he's not first a director. He is first a writer and uh, he doesn't have the uh, auteur um, mentality that, that Steve McQueen has. Steve McQueen is just a fantastic filmmaker, and he made an absolutely beautiful film with uh, Mangrove. Um, there is a scene where they they essentially have a party in the streets outside of this restaurant, and they're dancing. And the entire time, I'm thinking that something bad's going to happen. And it never does. We just watch as they, they dance, and this cultural uh, joy that they share. Um, and Steve McQueen just lets it play out. Um, and and I think that that's pretty cool. Uh, something that I think I take for granted. And yeah, I'm going to dive into politics a little bit here because that honestly is part of what I love, love about a lot of films is the statement that it has to make. Um, I think something that makes a film great is when it has something that needs to be said and when it's uh important to a time period um I don't I don't necessarily I think a lot of times I don't like films as much even if they're well crafted if they don't have a reason why it is being made in the moment that it is being made it gets lost on me a little bit um, and so this is one of those films where that is the case, and I think that was the way that the tr- trial of the Chicago Seven uh, was too. It, it was very, very timely. Both both films are. Um, but it's interesting to watch this film that is about Britain, London, and think and, and see it through the lens of particularly a white male living in America and watching as many of these things have happened in our, our country's history and are still happening today. And I think that's what makes this film even more important, is that this is still something, this racism, this systemic racism that is uh, very apparent in our police forces, in the power that police forces have and are able to abuse as a result. Um... It's important. And so to get to see all of these stories, not just mangrove, but all of these stories um, through the lens of an American eyes and basically the history that I know about America, and seeing that we're not so different, we're not so different from a lot of these other countries, doesn't excuse what is happening in here because we need to be better, but. To see that a lot of the same problems have happened throughout our history or are still happening today, um, I think is a nice reality check. I think that is something that uh, we all need to be a little bit more connected to the world around us. And one of the reasons that I love film is it allows us to be connected with experiences that we would otherwise not have. At its core, that is what drives me to love cinema. Is that I get to step out of my world for a little bit and see into somebody else's. So, Mangrove. Mangrove, I think, really hits hits this hard. Um, and... and that, that, I think, is what really, really pulls me in. The thing that uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about uh, some of the craft of this a little bit later because it applies to all of the films. Um, so I will talk about that a little bit. Um, so let's move on to the film Lovers Rock. Lover's Rock, I gave three and a half out of five stars. This is probably, out of the five, I think I liked this the fourth most. Um, shorter, I think it, this one just runs 70 minutes. And this is probably, the out of the five films, the one that is the least accessible to a average uh, movie watcher. Um, because not a lot happens. And as I was watching it, I kept thinking, "All right, when is something going to happen? When is something is something bad going to happen?" And it just doesn't. Literally, this is a a story about normal people that go to a party, and we watch as some romance starts to bud uh, at this party. In the way that it is filmed the way that it is captured makes you just feel like you're another party goer. There are a few scenes on either side of the party that kind of pull you out from that and you you get a view into these people's lives um, that is different from uh, what what a normal person would be able to see. But for the majority of the film, it's almost as if you're just another party goer and you're observing these things happening around you. The way the camera just kind of floats throughout the room as if it is gazing eyes um, and watching as these young adults are just having fun. They're there to party. And, um, and I think there's something that I really, really appreciate about this. Uh, I like this film more today than when I saw it, because I've let it kind of sit, settle in, and um, and, and I just appreciate the the raw uh, authenticity of what this film is trying to say. And I think I can relate. Maybe one of the things that uh, this does better than anything else is that it makes these people who were discriminated against during this time period, relatable. And that might be one of the greatest strengths of uh, the battle against against racism is making experiences relatable. There are some scenes where you are literally watching these partygoers dancing for the entirety of a song. And you're just there. You're just you're just along for the ride. Um and that's very Steve McQueen. That is the sort of thing that of course he would do that. Um but it still kind of caught me off guard a little bit. I wasn't uh, I, I didn't um I didn't really expect it to go that way, but it did. Um, and the entire film, there's a little bit of a sense of anxiety that something bad is going to happen, especially after watching mangrove where the police come in and, uh, create a lot of problems. There is one scene in lovers rock where, uh, there's a guest coming in from outside and a police car pulls up and you think that's when everything is going to flip and it just never does but there's clearly this anxiety that they know the police may be after them they may be trying to find a reason to get them into trouble and you know that 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 helps tie it into sort of this theme of uh them not being welcomed in this this area, but other than that, this is just normal people having uh, normal life experiences, and that's pretty cool. So, I also felt some anxiety toward uh, the fact that the main characters are really, uh, or the main character is really a young woman, and. The anxiety that you can tell that she is feeling being a young female in an environment where these males are potentially looking to prey on them. And they're not all doing that, but there is that field feeling that they are going to maybe get taken advantage of. And that makes you uncomfortable. Um, and we actually see that play out. Uh, to an extent with uh, one female who she is enjoying her experience at the party. And the already established kind of sleazy guy comes in and they're they're having fun. They're dancing. They're having fun. They go sneak off. And then later, the main character, the main woman, she uh, hears that there is kind of this conflict that is taking place and it seems as though this woman is on the verge of being raped. Um, And, and I think this, this makes quite a statement. Uh, The main character ends up breaking it up and it's not, it ends up being okay. But this idea that uh, I think we get lost in this rape culture where, Um, if a female shows interest in you in any way, that all of a sudden males are entitled to uh, be able to do whatever. And that's not the case. There is a line that is crossed, and when it is crossed, uh, then you, uh, as a male, (laughs) that male uh, has gone too far. And maybe we don't portray that well enough, In cinema, it's usually extreme where we see them like legitimately um, taking advantage of somebody, but a lot of times it's more subtle than that. And I think this film does a really good job of talking about that without it being the main, main thing that we're watching. But I think the part that was maybe a little more relatable to me, first of all, I don't like going to parties. That's not my scene. Um, Maybe during when I was in high school, I enjoyed being at social events and I did, I did enjoy that, but anymore like the idea of being at a party, um, I don't particularly love dancing. Um, And so I felt some anxiety just kind of being a part of that, that um, as the observer. But uh, the thing that I think that, that, really resonated with me is the representation of kind of that first love or like the, the excitement of meeting somebody that you're interested in and um, kind of just riding this wave of euphoria. Um, And, and it's simple. It's such a simple concept. And I think a lot of films that that are about being romantic, I don't think they quite get it right. This film did. It, it got it right. Um, and the very final scene is this young woman sneaking back into her house, and she gets into bed, and she gets under the covers, and she just has this giant smile on her face. And uh, that, that says it all it absolutely says it all um, that this simple night of just getting to uh, sort of get to know or get to be with this person that she never had any interaction with prior um, but had a very enjoyable night and is hopeful that they will get to continue this down the line. Uh, I think that is something that probably a lot of people, can relate to love is pretty universal maybe not everyone has had that experience but um there's something about love that uh is extremely relatable um and that was the case for this film um like i said right now i have three and a half stars there's a chance that i end up uh, moving this one up um but because of uh it's a little shallow in terms of what it is trying to do um, I had to kind of knock it down a little bit. Um, the third film is Red, White, and Blue. And this was actually my favorite of the the five films. I also gave this one four stars. It was pretty close to Mangrove. Um, but uh, this one, I feel like John Boyega is so good in this film that um, you're just along for the journey. <laughs> and... It it feels like the film has more depth because uh, he's such a likable character. Um, So the premise of this film is that uh, a young man who who has dedicated a lot of his uh, young adult life to studying research and science, um, he's not exactly happy with that and he wants to do something else. And so uh, as a black man in... London where black men aren't treated particularly well by the police he wants to become a police officer to help change uh, what what is happening systemically um, within the department and he it, it stems a little bit uh, from an experience that he, his father had where his father was beaten by the police for something super arbitrary in what makes this film so great is that there is this kind of juxtaposition of clearly conflict between a black man wanting to become a police officer wanting to become the thing that uh ultimately, it has brought them a lot of pain. And I think this this is a, a probably a question for a lot of black officers here in the United States. They probably take some some flack for that. Um, because it almost seems maybe like a betrayal. And so we see that, in particular, uh, this young man's father feels a little bit betrayed by it. He doesn't like the fact that he's going to... Uh, become a police officer and so beyond watching him uh kind of take on this role we also get this really cool relationship story between uh the our main character and um and his father and that is something that that just it layers the the film in a way that The other films don't really do. Um, You don't have as... They're they're, they're a little more straightforward. And uh, that that just gave it a slight edge for me. There are a number of times in the film where uh, there might be a little bit more drama. You don't exactly know how things are going to go. And... um, In particular, there's a scene where after he becomes a police officer um, and he is chasing a man who is clearly the criminal, um, he ends up getting attacked by this man and doesn't have any backup because the white officers on the force are not um, willing to back him up. Um, And that is probably... (laughs) some of the most drama in terms of like, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, that, that, well, I guess, I guess mangrove has some because you have some protest scenes and you, you see that things are going to get bad. And then also we also see officers beating them a lot. Um, we, we see it also in Alex Weedle a little bit, um, as they also have some protest scenes in that film. Um, but we'll talk about that here in a little bit. Uh, but the, I think, essence of this film, and ultimately we get to see that our, our main character's father kind of comes around to things and recognizes that his son um, sees that there are a lot of bigger problems than can just be easily fixed by him joining the police force. There's a quote from the film uh, that that his father says, big change, that is a slow turning wheel. And, you know, in the end, I think that this ultimately is the kind of theme of this this entire anthology is that in order to create change, it's going to take time. And it hurts. We see that it hurts. And I think we feel that here in this country, too. Um, and in particular, this year, it feels like, uh, this past year, um, where where there's a call for this big change. And um, a lot of folks who have... Hurt for many many years they know that this big change is a it's a slow turning wheel and the way that, that red white and blue ends um it kind of ends a little bit abruptly but i think that it was important the way that that ended um where they're still kind of the open to these possibilities um, so I, I did. I really loved this film. Um, the fourth film in the series is a film called Alex Weedle. And Alex Weedle is uh, a, a film that is edited in a way where we kind of see it. the time. Um, uh, it has some flashbacks and uh, we, we see it kind of out of order a little bit. And it's based on a true story about this young man who uh, essentially is an orphan, and he, uh, he his life kind of leads up to this moment where he goes to prison, where we see him in prison at the very beginning, um, and kind of how he got there, and the role in which uh, society just plays in almost predetermining what's going to happen to him. In the very final scene, we see him... Uh, looking at his records and see some of the things that they're saying about him. Um, and I think there's this realization that uh, he, he 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 recognizes that he all the cards were s- essentially stacked against him and that that makes it even that much more imperative. Um, that, that the story is being told, um, and that we recognize that there are for certain people from the moment that they're born, that they have cards stacked against them. Um, this one's a little bit more subtle. Uh, this was my least favorite of the five. Uh, and... Um, it's not that it was bad. I give this one also three and a half out of five stars. It just, uh, it, it felt a little more straightforward in terms of the narrative aspect of it, even though it is told out of order. Um, and so it didn't have as much that I would say is special about it. Um, but uh, in a way, it may also be one of the most accessible of the films um, because of that. Um, but uh, music plays a big role in it. Um, comedy kind of plays a big role in this. Uh, and we, we see as, as these events play out for our main character, Alex. Um, but like I said, it doesn't have as much to say. I mean, as much to show in terms of uh, the way that it is presented as maybe some of these other films. The fifth film in the uh, series is a film called Education. And this one I liked quite a bit. And I think a lot of that is based upon my uh, experience as a teacher. And one of the main reasons that I went into teaching was because I want uh, the ability to um, experience things from a diverse perspective. Uh, I understand that I do not know everything. And through my students, I get to teach them a little bit of something and they get to teach me a little bit of something. In the case of this film, um, we, we see that a lot. The system is very often stacked against people who come from a certain background, and that is certainly the case for this young man um, that in education, uh, where they, because he has special education needs, they push him out of the school um, because he's causing some behavior issues, and they put him in a school that they say is for special education needs, and it just isn't. It's a less than uh, educational experience. And that's problematic. And so we, the, the film plays out where we get to see uh, these women who have made this their goal to fight for the West Indian immigrants who are being constantly abused in the education system. And how they are, these kids, they, they're never given a shot. And they want to give them a shot by uh, providing them these services, and it's just—it's a cool story. I—I I really enjoyed this, and I think that um, out of all of the films, um, not only is it pretty accessible, but it's—it's uh, it's heartfelt, and uh, the way that it ends is. Uh, just just makes you happy. It seems like a great film to end the series on. Um but I think that it has a little bit of a call to action as I think they they they, they talk often throughout the film about uh the idea that the system is stacked against them and that they dictate the system dictates the way that things go. There is a quote um that they they have in this film where they're asking them about do they know anything about their their past And one of the kids says that we were slaves and um the the woman says to her says to the child, that is what they want you to know. That is what they want you to know. And I just thought that was, really really powerful because um i think about our education system and how we often do not reflect uh all cultural groups all ethnicities and we try to tell their history and teach them their history through the eyes of our own history and we want them to know what the the things that we uh you know, ultimately that benefit the powerful majority. I thought this quote was particularly interesting because it kind of piggybacks off a quote that shows up in the film Alex Weedle when he's in prison and he's learning from his cellmate, um, just kind of about life. His cellmate says, if you don't know your past, you won't know your future. And I think that is probably pretty true for a lot of people is that when you don't know where you come from, if you don't have any idea of uh, what, what you have been up against, then it's hard to really get focused for your future. And so when in education, they say the quote, that is what they want you to know. That, that shows that for many of these kids, they don't know their past. So how are they supposed to know their future? Anyway, I thought, I thought those were uh, some pretty powerful quotes. Um, let's talk a little bit here about uh, some of the things that I saw in all of the films. Um, obviously, they all kind of have important things to say in different ways, um, and they, they really represent this community throughout this time period and uh, more than maybe anything else, just getting a little peek into what life would be like for these folks um, in this area during this time uh, is extremely (laughs) attractive to me as a film watcher. Um, And Steve McQueen does a fantastic job of tying these ideas together and creating this very cohesive, um, anthology, while still allowing each film to stand on its own, um, and and that that shows his expertise as a filmmaker in taking a vision and being able to see it through in a very successful sort of way. Um, but the the thing about Steve McQueen that makes him special, in my opinion, is that his perspective. The perspective that he passes on to us as uh, film watchers, as the audience, is that he tries to give us a vantage point that is not your typical vantage point. Rather than having the camera straight on and viewing the action taking place in front of you, he likes to come at you from up above, from down below, uh, he may be focused in on um, something that, that, like just a body part, um, or at times he's focused on something still in the room while the action is taking place outside of the camera, sometimes coming into the view of the camera, and then exiting again and letting you listen and experience this without seeing everything. And just getting glimpses and little pieces, and he does this in a lot of his films, and it it's enthralling. Um, the, this is v- a very McQueen, uh, way of of showing his his story, um, and it makes it more interesting. It makes it you keep looking on in awe of what he has created um and even at times where these scenes may be going on for longer than the average movie watcher would love for them to be going on for um the the way in which it the way in which it is being captured is uh interesting enough to keep you kind of on the edge of your seat and intrigued by what is happening. In particular, we see this be the case in Lovers Rock. Um as the camera kind of floats within the dancing of the group and uh we get we we just get this unique perspective. Um even if you don't end up ever watching the full film of Lovers Rock, if you can go and see some of these dance sequences just to see how wonderful in the fact that he was able to perceive that this, this, the way that the, these scenes are going to be captured, um, would be effective in this way to feel like you are in the, the thick of it. Um, and it, it's so effortless. Like the people around him do not, or around the camera, do not seem as though they are, have a camera upon them. They, they just seem like they're in the room. Um, and that is pretty pretty exceptional. Um, I think that when, when Steve McQueen's career is said and done, uh, he will probably go down as one of the best filmmakers of all time. And it is because of his ability to bring a... Unique vantage point and to force your gaze on something that if you weren't uh, Behind a camera and you were actually in the room you may not be forced to look at Um, and That's pretty cool Uh, another thing that I thought was uh, Really special about this film is that he loves to play with mirrors And, um, I, I'm a huge sucker for, uh, any filmmaker that uses mirrors to show the scene in an interesting way where you don't see the character except through a mirror. Um, and it, it makes, it just makes it more interesting to watch. Um, it could be a really simple moment where not a lot is happening, but the way in which the mirrors are used, um, I think that that. Makes it more interesting, um, and he's not the only filmmaker to do this. I've seen plenty of movies where they use mirrors uh, in a pretty incredible way. Um, the film uh, *Columbus* from a few years back that that does some cool things with mirrors. Um, earlier this year, oh Sundance at Sundance, the film *Passing*, um, which will be on Netflix later this year. Uh, the film *Passing* does some pretty cool things with mirrors. Um, But Steve McQueen, you know, he's a master of doing this, and uh, it's been pretty impressive. It was pretty impressive to watch this. Um, Now, a couple more things before we kind of wrap this up. Uh, I was in particularly drawn in by how big of a role the music played in, in all of these films. There is a moment in each one where music has a, uh, a pretty important role that it plays, whether it's culturally or um, just as kind of a showcase. Uh, I think that that music in general just plays such a role in our cultural experiences and the way that we go through life. And uh, it it is a way to connect us. It is a way to um, tell a story. It is a way for us to just enjoy the simple things in life. And uh, Steve McQueen um, definitely makes this a part of his film and forces you as a viewer to just sit back and watch. There's lots of dance numbers um, where they are nothing more than just being a dance number Um, and uh, to represent who these people are through their love of music and dance. And um, that is, that is something that uh, if you don't take the time to just kind of reflect upon, uh, you may miss just how, beautiful and um, simple but also important that its inclusion is Um, and how for these people that have uh, a lot of pain that they have to deal with every single day um, just being who they are in the community that they are living in uh, to be able to kind of let down their hair and. Um, Just enjoy each other's company through their love of music and dance. Uh, It's pretty cool. So I think that's a good place to kind of wrap all of this up. Uh, As a whole, I would highly recommend watching this. Um, I once again will warn you that it requires you to be a patient Audience member, at times, um, but I think if this is the these are the sort of films that, in my opinion, give you a really good opportunity to enjoy the craft of film. So many people watch movies simply for the entertainment of it. And at its core, many of these films are made as a work of art. And a lot of that artfulness of it gets lost. And so Steve McQueen, he almost forces you to appreciate the art of filmmaking. To say, that's an interesting shot. That's an incredible performance. And I didn't really talk about the performances a whole lot, other than John Boyega. But there were some pretty great performances. And I think some of it, because it's such an ensemble uh, anthology and it takes all of these characters to um, really make it work. some of the performances kind of get lost in all of it and but there are some really incredible performances and because of the way that mcqueen shoots the shots or the the these films it really makes you pay attention to the subtle aspects of acting And how it doesn't have to be something completely over the top in order for it to be a fantastic performance. Some of the better performances out there are just great reflections of life in the way that people really are. And it doesn't have to be some caricature. And uh, I think McQueen does a great job of allowing us to see that. Um, I, I hope that you do end up watching this if you haven't already. Um, and that you maybe gain a greater appreciation for the art of filmmaking and the craft that is involved in it. And um, in, in can start to maybe see uh, some of these things uh, through a different lens. Uh, I like to be challenged as an audience member um, and uh, like to see some things that are different. And see how they work within the, the world in which these filmmakers um, build up for us to be able to watch. Uh, so when we come back from this break, we are going to be talking some news. We're going to talk Golden Globes. And we are going to talk Critics' Choice. Uh, so stay right there. And when we return, we got a whole bunch of other stuff to talk about. We are talking uh, Golden Globes. So the Golden Globes happened this past weekend, and um, kind of as expected, uh, some weird things happened. As the night started, I thought, you know, maybe this is going to go the way that I think it should, um, as Daniel Kaluuya ended up winning Best Supporting Actor. Uh, caught some people off guard. A lot of people thought that Sasha Baron Cohen might win this award. Um, they also thought that maybe Leslie Leslie Odom Jr. might end up winning this award. But uh, in the end, Daniel Kaluuya has picked up a lot of steam for his uh, portrayal of Fred Hampton Hampton in Judas and the Black Messiah. And he's quite fantastic. This was a very much-deserved win. And uh, I'm glad that it happened. But from there... It, Things kind of went a little wacky. Um, We'll talk about that here in a minute. One thing I do want to talk about in terms of Daniel Kaluuya is that now that he has won a big-time Supporting Actor Award on TV, this may start to pick up some steam for the film Judas and the Black Messiah. It's going to be interesting to see if by winning more of these awards that more folks in the Academy will end up watching this film and decide, you know, I think it's one of the best pictures of the year and end up nominating it for best picture. Right now, I do have the film on the outside looking in. Uh, I I would not be surprised, though, if it ends up sneaking in there um, on the coattails of Daniel Kaluuya. Um, but after Best Supporting Actor... Uh, we ended up getting the award for Best Original Song. And heading into the Golden Globes, one of the categories that I was most confident about was Best Original Song. I thought the song Speak Now from One Night in Miami, uh, performed by Leslie Odom Jr., was going to be the... Favorite to win, and it was going to end up winning. Um, and it just did not. Uh, they ended up going with the song Scene from the film The Life of Head. Uh, I don't know if this is going to end up being a trend. Uh, and to be honest, I still haven't even listened to the song. A lot of times I don't like to listen to the song uh, when it's not connected to the film. Um, I will end up watching the, the film The Life Ahead. It is a foreign film, and it is on Netflix. Uh, so any of you can go watch it. Um, but the, the uh, song, I, I haven't listened to it yet. So I don't know how good of a song it actually is. But it is written by Diane Warren, who has been nominated many, 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 many times and hasn't won uh, an Oscar? And so maybe, maybe the Academy is ready to to give her an Oscar this year. Um, and and we'll continue to see this this song pick up uh, some some wins. We're gonna see if it does this weekend uh, at the Critics' Choice or if the one-night Miami Speak Now ends up uh, taking it. Or maybe something altogether different ends up winning, like Fight For You from uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, we're we're, we're going to have to wait and see. Um, but I, I, I would think until that happens, that Speak Now still is probably the favorite uh, to win Best Song. And then things continued to get a little wacky uh, when we got... Uh, a, a win for well, it, I thought I had originally assumed that we were going to uh, see Maria Bakalova win best actress in a comedy or musical for Borat uh, because she is one of the favorites to potentially win the Best Supporting Actress Award at the Oscars for, for that film, that, that performance as well. But she ended up getting beat uh, by Roseman Pike, um, and that <laughs> honestly was fairly surprising. Although uh, I, I haven't watched uh, the film I Care A Lot, which is also a Netflix film, I uh, haven't watched that yet. Um, but from, from the sound of it, it kind of fits this, this, uh, category pretty well. Um, I, I don't perceive that, uh, that she, she is going to continue winning by any measure. Um, but, uh, it was a little bit surprising simply just because of the, the steam that was behind the Maria Bakalova train, um, Even though it's in a different category, I sense that this probably means that uh, her chances of winning the Best Supporting Actress uh, award have gone down quite a bit, Um, and you know (laughs) that's a little bit sad. I I feel bad. Like I haven't once again, I haven't watched this film, um, but from the sound of it, she's pretty incredible uh, as a some kind of a debut. Uh, that that she she isn't being recognized for this role when so many feel like she probably should. Now the best supporting actress the, the best supporting actress category also kind of got thrown for a loop because uh, it was thought that Glenn Close was going to start her her march toward finally winning an Oscar. For her role in Hill, Hillbilly Elegy. But. Uh, Jodie Foster had something to say about that. Um, when she won Best Supporting Actress for. The Mauritanian. And. our Mauritanian. I, I don't quite know, remember how it's uh, uh, pronounced. I think. Mauritanian. Um, and this kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, and so. I'm, I'm going to watch it, but I, I just don't see Jodie Foster getting a nomination for this. Maybe, maybe she will, maybe this is going to be picking up steam, but she hasn't been recognized by, um, some of these other, these other, uh, award shows thus far. Um, and so it, this one kind of came out of left field. Um, and now this category is pretty wide open. Uh, Unless we start to see some trends with the guilds and with a like critic's choice and then SAG and then BAFTA, um, I don't know that we're going to have a clear front runner going into Oscar night. Um, so it's going to be an interesting race to keep an eye on. Um, the other category that, you know, is now becoming absolutely mind blowing is best actress. This is a stacked category uh, between Viola Davis from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Carey Mulligan for Promising Young Woman, uh, Frances McDormand for Nomadland. Those are all heavy hitters. They've all won um, some sort of award this year for their performances, um, and they they all are have been talked about at one point in time as the front runner to win this award, but then we had on Golden Globe night, they announced that Andra Day for the United States versus Billie Holiday won the best actress award um, for best actress in a drama. That makes things pretty interesting. Uh, The reason being is she was not nominated for the SAG award. Um, She is nominated for a critic's choice. So we're going to see this weekend If she ends up winning the Critics' Choice Award, that may create enough steam for her to ride this thing out and potentially end up winning the Oscar. However, SAG has never, or I guess the Oscars have never given a Best Actress Oscar to an actress that wasn't at least nominated by the Screen Actors Guild. Never. It's never happened in the history. The only exception is Kate Winslet. She won the Oscar for The Reader. She was nominated by SAG in the Best Actress category for Revolutionary Road. She didn't win that one. But they nominated her in the Supporting Role for The Reader, and they gave her that award. So they still awarded her uh, for that performance. It was just in a different category. And that is the only exception. Otherwise, no actress has ever won Best Actress at the Oscars without having at least a Screen Actors Guild nomination. And there's always a chance that that eventually ends up being broken because there's a exceptions all the time and this would be the year that that might happen just because of the way that films are released uh the united states versus billy holiday was not released to the public until last friday um so there there still might be some buzz it may i mean with with over a month to go until oscars a lot can happen between then that's plenty of time to run a campaign that could potentially get you that that win and uh, if she if she can get in the door when the nominations come out here in the next couple weeks, I think that uh, it's going to be a horse race to to see who who ends up winning that. And just like Best Supporting Actress, we may not know who that front runner is come Oscar night, um, which it would be pretty surprising because it seems like most years we have a pretty good idea who's going to win that award going into uh, the Oscar night. The last thing I want to talk about is there was some thought that The Trial of the Chicago 7 was going to win the Best Drama category. They ended up giving it to Nomadland, and uh, I'm very happy that they did because Nomadland was a better film. Um, Not to say that The Trial of the Chicago 7 is bad. Uh, It's just not, in my opinion, of Best Picture quality. Uh, it feels very much like the film Argo, where it's very well made, um, but it doesn't have a lot that makes it special. Uh, it does everything very well, doesn't do anything amazing. And I kind of feel that way about that film. Um, so we're going to see. We're going to see if maybe that that uh, The Trial of the Chicago 7 is now dead in the water and Nomadland might just sweep the rest of the way. Um, But I think that we also need to uh, take into account that Minari could be a player. And if I had to rank the three for most likely to win Best Picture to least likely, because I think those are the three. I don't think any of the other films are going to sneak in and uh, potentially win this. Um, I think it's those three films, unless something drastically changes here in the next month. Uh, I think it's between those three. And I think Nomad Land's most likely, Minari second, and Trial of Chicago 7 is third. Um, and that's kind of my takeaway from, from the uh, the Golden Globes. But this weekend, we have the Critics' Choice Awards. And real quick, I'm just going to go through and I'm going to give you my predictions for each of these categories. Um, the Critics' Choice more than any other of the award shows has the uh, most in common for Best Picture nominees with the eventual best Picture nominees at Oscar. Uh, they have a, I think like a 90, about a 90% uh, success rate in predicting who's going to get nominated for um, Best Picture. So if you get a Critics Choice nomination, uh, there is a decent chance that you're going to end up with an Oscar nomination. Um, but they do nominate 10. I mean, the Oscars can nominate up to 10, but they they don't usually do that. That rule is going to change where they are going to require 10 nominees, I think, next year, um, just to make sure that they are bringing in maybe some of these more diverse films. Um, but that, that this the nominations for Critics' Choice kind of give us a a feel here for uh, what we may see on Oscar, when the Oscar nominations come out. So my prediction is that Nomadland ends up winning this. Um, I think that Promising Young Woman is a pretty well-loved critics uh, film, but I just don't think it's going to have enough um, to to go the full way. So I think it'll be Nomadland. I think they're going to give Best Director to Chloe Zhao for directing Nomadland. Um, And she may very well be on her way to sweeping uh, up until the Oscar and still end up winning the Oscar. The interesting thing, though, is that uh, only one woman has ever won Best uh, Director at the Oscars. And that was um, for The Hurt Locker, Catherine Bigelow. Um, So things aren't necessarily in her favor. Uh, so there, there is some some anxiety I think that comes along with uh, thinking that she's going to win that. Um, but at this moment, I'd say it's a pretty safe bet. I think that at Critics' Choice this weekend, Carrie Mulligan is going to end up winning the Best Actress award. Um, if she doesn't, I think that is it for her, and that she is not going to end up winning the Best Actress at the Oscars. Um, but I think she'll win. Uh, she is a Critic's favorite. Best actor will be Chadwick Boseman as he continues his march toward the Oscar. Um, And I I think that's going to happen. Yu Zhong Yun I think is, for Minari, is going to end up winning Best Supporting Actress. And I think this is interesting because she may end up being the favorite to win the Oscar. She obviously did not win a Golden Globe. um, But with a wide-open race, it's anyone's to, to take, and uh, I think that she has a very strong possibility of winning this. Um, and, and we're going to find out. I think this race is going to be one of the most interesting, maybe just behind uh, Best Actress this weekend, uh, to see how the direction in which all this is going to take. After that, uh, I think for Best Supporting Actor, we're going to continue to see Daniel Kaluuya uh, make his way through um, and uh, keep picking up those trophies. Uh, Best Original Screenplay, I'm going to say it's going to go to Promising Young Woman. Um, Trial of Chicago 7 won the Golden Globe. Uh, It is an Aaron Sorkin script, uh, which means that it, it probably will have a good shot at winning the Oscar, but I think here for the Critics' Choice, they are going to go with Promising Young Woman. Uh, Best Adapted Screenplay, I think it's going to go to Nomadland. Nomadland seems to be a favorite, um, and I think they will uh, win it again here. Um, The film, Best Film Ensemble. I think this is where The Trial of the Chicago 7 is going to win. Uh, They have a pretty incredible big ensemble. Um, but I could I could also see them going with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom uh or One Night in Miami. Or maybe even if they want to uh finally get the five bloods in there, they may go with the five bloods. Um Minari and Judas and the Black Messiah, I think are both uh kind of dark horses, but uh I, I think it's gonna be the trial of the Chicago Seven. Uh best young actor or actress. I think it's going to be Helena Zengel from News of the World. It's hard to say. This doesn't have a lot of, uh, doesn't mean much for the Oscars, but it is one of the categories that they have. Best Comedy Film. I think that's going to Palm Springs. I think they're going to pick that over Borat just because it is a little bit more critically acclaimed. Um, But it could go to Borat. I also think there is an outside possibility they go with the 40-year-old version. Um, as this is a little bit more indie, uh, critics may be a little more in tune with this and decide they're going to go that route. Um, but for now, I'm saying it's going to be Palm Springs, best foreign film. Once again, I think it's going to be Minari. Uh, Minari won the Golden Globe. I think it's going to win here. Can't be, can't win the Oscar. Uh, but uh, it, it seems like this isn't the favorite to win um i'm i'm pretty confident in predicting that best cinematography i think that's going to nomad land uh although i think mank or Tenet could sneak in um but i think it will be nomad land uh best costume design i'm going with ma rainey's black bottom uh could be emma the the idea of these period pieces with dread long dresses uh they they seem to be favorites a lot of time but Uh, We're going to go with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Um, Best editing its going to be The Trial of the Chicago 7. I think um, just the way that they intercut some of the court scenes with the events that took place. It's really well edited. I think that they will give best editing to The Trial of the Chicago 7. Best hair and makeup. I'm also going with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Um, It's going to continue to show their love there. Uh, though it could be Mank or Hillbilly Elegy. um, Both have pretty good makeup, um, and so they may end up going that route. Um, Best score, it's going to go to Soul. I think Soul's going to sweep it the rest of the way out. Should win the Oscar for best score. Best song, I am predicting it's going to be Speak Now. Maybe uh, this is a Fool Me Once, Shame on You, Fool Me Twice. Uh, Fool can't be fools again, right? Um shame on me if that's uh, if I lose that one again. Um and it does end up going to scene. Uh we're gonna see. We're gonna see. It's gonna be an interesting category. Um best production design. This is definitely gonna be Mank. Uh the production design is pretty incredible here. Um and I think that's it's gonna end up winning the Oscar. Uh best visual effects. It's gonna go to tenet. Um, the Invisible Man may have an outside chance, didn't get on the shortlist for Oscars, um, but Tenet's uh, visual effects are amazing, and it would be much deserved if it wins. That's all. That's all for for film. They do have TV. I'm not getting into TV, <laughs> once again. It's not my uh, wheelhouse, um, but that that is what we got for Critics' Choice. So... For now, that's all I'm going to talk about for news. Uh, We will be getting some more guilds in the next week. So next week's episode should have um, a few more guilds. On top of the fact that I'm going to be giving some Oscar predictions. um, Because the Oscar nominations will be coming out here in a couple weeks. So when we return, I am going to be giving a rundown of the events for the next few weeks up to the Oscars. And we will go over last week's trivia. See you on the other side. We are talking all about the events that are coming up um, this upcoming week March 12th we are going to do a review of Minari I'm so excited to finally watch this film um, and in that same episode we're going to do an Oscar nominations preview where you're going to get my predictions we're just going to talk about that a little bit um, so it should be a really fun show. Uh, The following week, we are going to do another round, which is the favorite to win Best International Film at the Oscars. Uh, By that point in time, we're going to find out if it got nominated. I would be very surprised if it didn't. Um, That will be on March 19th. The next week, we are doing Pieces of a Woman. Um, That could be subject to change based upon whether or not it it gets Oscar nominations. Um, If it does then we will be doing Pieces of a Woman on March 26th. On April 2nd, we are going to be doing a review of the film The Father, um, which doesn't come out until the 26th to a wide uh, range of audiences. They are really holding out on that. Um, But we will do that review on April 2nd. On April 9th, uh, as of right now I have hillbilly elegy uh, penciled in there once again that might be subject to change based upon if uh, this film gets nominated if it doesn't I'm not doing it um, if it does then yeah we're gonna we're going to do a review of hillbilly Elegy then on April 16th uh, by that point in time I'm hoping that I will have been able to see all of the Oscar shorts that were nominated and so we're going to do a show where we just talk about all the shorts in both live action or in live action animated and in documentary so that will be april 16th and then april 23rd on april 23rd we will be doing a oscar show because that weekend is finally the 2020 or i guess it'd be the 2021 but four films of 2020 Oscar uh, ceremony. And so we're going to talk all things Oscar. All right. And give my predictions for Oscars. Uh, give my tops of the year. Um, and so you know what my ballot would be like at that point in time. Um, if, if, uh, if I were an Oscar voter. So let's talk some trivia here to close out the show. As I said before, Um, For the time being, we are going to put a pause on trivia until I can maybe reimagine the way that I want to do this a little bit. Um, It will return. It just is going to probably be a little bit different in format. So uh, question one last week was Chloe Zhao was tasked with directing the upcoming 2021 film Eternals, which is a part of what big time box office franchise? That would be Marvel. Um, it is a Marvel film, and it's going to be super interesting to see what Chloe Zhao does with that film. Uh, question number two. Francis McDormand is married to what Oscar-winning director? This may come as a surprise to uh, some, some folks, um, but the answer is... Joel Cohen, um, Joel Cohen of the Cohen brothers. Uh, so they've been married for a little bit. Um, kind of an interesting tidbit. Um, Frances McDormand will star opposite Denzel Washington in a film directed by her husband, based on what famous Shakespeare tragedy? Jo- Joel, our Joel Cohen is doing uh, his first film, not with his brother, and they are doing the tragedy of Macbeth. Um, kind of kind of cool, I'm looking forward to that that should be coming out this year uh, question number four Sean Penn's ex-spouse Robin Wright made her own directorial debut this year in an eerily similar film to Into the Wild entitled What that film was Land and that premiered at Sundance and it, it's it's pretty similar um, but uh, I thought it was interesting that the two both made kind of a, a film where the main character is living out on their own in the middle of the wilderness. Um, Both are good. Obviously Into the Wild, as you know from listening to my last show. It's one of my favorite films of all time, so clearly that's the better film. Um, And then question number five, landscapes are his thing. Terrence Malick captures the beginnings of America in what 2005 film starring Colin Farrell, Christopher Plummer, and Christian Bale? That is the new world. All right. That is all I have for today. This was a very long show. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Tune in next week when we talk Minari and uh, Oscar nomination predictions. Can't wait to see you then. Have a great week.